You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number three, a conversation with Dr. Pam Popper, an evidence-based and plant-based naturopathic physician. When it's dinner time, I got something you should try. It's crunchy, green, and yummy, and it's about to blow your mind. It's low on calories, and it looks like many trees. When you're having dinner with me, broccoli. Hi everybody, this is Dr. Yami and I am a board certified pediatrician and well coach and a passionate promoter of plant-based diets and healthy lifestyles. Each week I will bring you a fresh, new, fun and interesting podcast focusing specifically on habit formation, behavior change, motivation and of course eating plants. Are you ready to learn something new today? Let's do it. Dr. Pamela Popper, also known as Dr. Pam. She is a naturopathic physician and a PhD, the executive director at the Wellness Forum Institute in Ohio. So thank you so much, Dr. Popper, for joining us today. I really appreciate you being on the podcast, and I feel so honored that you agreed to do this interview with me. Well, thank you. I love this. I love doing this kind of stuff because I think this is a wonderful way to expose people. People love these kinds of podcasts. You know? so, so you get a lot of information out to people in a way that is easy for them to digest. And, um, and, and, and I know it changes people's lives because they write to us. I mean, I'm sure you get these emails too. I heard your podcast. It made me curious. I started looking into things. So I think this is a terrific way to reach people. Awesome. Thank you. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, how you ended up where you are and what you're doing now? All right. Well, how I ended up where I am is by accident, actually. (laughs) I never intended to be in the healthcare profession. That wasn't my goal. Um, I was in sales and marketing. I was in business. And that was even a default decision. I don't know if I had ever told you this before, but I was a piano performance major and a French minor in college. Wow. Um, And I had danced before that. I owned a dance studio. And so I came from kind of an artsy background and realized that it was hard to make a living doing those things. So I thought I should become a patron and go get a real job. That was my first thought. So I ended up in sales and marketing. I was pretty good at, at what I did. Uh, sales training was my specialty. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you a couple things. I wasn't taking very good care of myself because I didn't really know anything about what that meant, what to do. And I didn't dislike my job, but I sure wasn't in love with it. You know, So um, I solved two problems at the same time when I found out about this. I found something to do that I love, and I cleaned up my health. So anyway, I'm living my life, 38 years old, overweight, um, you know, eating, co- drinking coffee all day, eating cookies. Those are my favorite things, cookies all day, and cheese. And, you know, the, the typical person not paying any attention. I didn't exercise. I used to put my garbage cans on the street, on, on the uh, hood of my car, and drive them to the street. So I would yeah. So look at look at me today running marathons. It just doesn't jive. Well, um, fortunately, I didn't get sick, but I developed a little bit of an interest in nutrition, and somebody loaned me John McDougall's book, and that's how this all started. It made so much sense. I thought, here's a doctor who's saying the cause of disease is food. He had all kinds of information and documentation about how he was using food for intervention. 
And so I was interested for myself, and it wasn't long before I became interested in, wow, I could have fun talking to people about this. So that's how it all started. And then from there, you know, I just grew a company for 21 years, and we do business in 35 countries, and, you know, it just sort of grew. That's my story. That's awesome. Now, when I actually took one of your courses, and it was great, and in the course, one of the things that you talk about that has really stuck with me is how you consider yourself an evidence-based physician. So I would love for you to talk more about what that means to you and how you feel that we can train our medical students and our residents to think more in terms of being evidence-based, even when they know they want to practice lifestyle medicine and prevention what does that mean, evidence-based? That's a great question. And, and I'll tell you, it's harder these days to be an evidence-based um, physician or practitioner of any type because, as you've seen, the medical journals are filled with such garbage. I mean, it, you can come up with anything you want to tell people and find a study to support it. So if I want to tell people, listen, you eat chocolate every day between 12 and 2, you'll lose 10 pounds a month, I'm sure I can find a study that says that. So what you have to do, in my opinion, is you have to set some criteria for evidence. And we have several criteria we use. Things like it actually has to make a difference to the patient. I know that that sounds like the obvious, but, but you and I have looked at research that says, take this drug, for example. It reduces the number of incidents of chest pain from five per week to four per week. Okay, that's enough to get the drug approved, and it's statistically significant but the patient still has four episodes of chest pain a week. This is not meaningful improvement for the patient. And his or her risk factors for everything, heart attack, stroke, still the same. So one of the big considerations, I think, when we look at evidence-based medicine is good evidence, well-designed studies without conflicts of interest. And that most important thing is that whatever it is that we're proposing to do with somebody, that it actually leads to a longer life, a better life, reduction of comorbidities, that sort of thing. And so when you start applying that type of filter, huge swaths of the medical literature just get put aside. I mean, I get medical journals and I'll look at a journal that's, that's yay thick and, and maybe one article actually talks about something that would make a difference in somebody's life. Okay. Mm -hmm. It would actually be off of a drug, not have to deal with this disease. And all the rest of it is all about this meaningless garbage, you know, that mm -hmm. might be statistically significant. Uh, but it just doesn't change anybody's life in a meaningful way. So that's what I mean. When people come in here, I'll give you a great example. You know, people come in here and they say, I'm, I'm worried about my cholesterol. And I'm worried about their cholesterol too, because high cholesterol is not a good thing to have. But you take a statin drug, you get that cholesterol down, but you only reduce the risk of a heart attack or stroke by 1.2%. So I explain to people, listen, you're not here really about your cholesterol. That's a marker for what's going on. And nobody comes in here and says, listen, I just want great blood work. Give me the best blood test results in the world so I can show everybody at work and I win. You know, what they really are saying, they don't know how to say it, but they're saying, I don't want to have a heart attack. I don't want to have mm -hmm. to I want to die early. I want to live long enough to see my grandchildren graduate from college and get married. And, and so you start looking at things from what, what do we really want to give these people? And that's the filter. That's mm -hmm. the filter we use. Whenever, so let's flip the tables a little bit. And whenever you're meeting a patient that comes in, especially ones that love to read about all the newest diets and all the newest trends, and they're just overwhelmed. And they don't know who to trust or who to believe and what to do anymore. And they come to you and say, Dr. Pam, 
just tell me what to do. How do I figure out what really is best for me and my health? How do you approach that situation? Um, great question. And I have a little bit of a different approach than many people because I think, and I have this in a lot of my slide sets and everything, if you come here and you do what I say instead of what somebody else said, you really haven't taken control of your health. Even if we could argue I have better ideas about things because the dynamic hasn't changed. I don't know what's going on with my body. I'm just following directions. So one of the things that I tell people, my job is not to tell you what to do. My job is to look at the options you have. Um, you, you're taking a drug. Should you do it? Should you not? Should it be a different drug? Should it be a lower dose? Should you have never been put on in the first place? Put on in the first place. Let's look at all of this so that you can decide what you want to do. And I don't do primary care here in Ohio, but but um, the idea then is that people go back to their doctors and we're changing the, the definition of informed consent. So informed consent typically in a medical setting looks like this. Um, the doctor says do this. We call that informing. And then the patient says, okay, and we call that consent. In this model of healthcare, the doctor says, I recommend something. The patient says, if it's not an emergency, that's a different situation. But the patient says, interesting idea. I'm going to be looking into that and considering my options, and I will get back to you, and I'll inform you of my choice. And then the patient starts to become his or her own advocate and make decisions based on knowledge rather than just this story I'm listening to right now sounds pretty good. So I'll do that until the next story comes along that sounds really good and people are all over the place then. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially because um, nowadays I feel like a lot of newer physicians are learning how to be a coach and a guide rather than just this expert model of, I'm going to tell you what to do and you either do it or don't. And if you don't do it, I'm going to discharge you from my practice. So that can become a little bit tricky and it doesn't help empower the patient like you're doing where you are. One of the reasons I was interested in talking to you today is because I am trying to focus my podcast on forming habits and changing behavior and also a motivation. And you have a course that you're going to be starting soon um, that is called Forming and Maintaining Optimal Habits. I deal a lot, as a pediatrician, I deal mostly with moms and their kids and, and their families. So I would love to know from you, and I know it's probably going to be impossible to do this, but what do you think is the most important foundational concept in adopting and changing habits? Well, I'll try to answer this in a, in a short um, version. I think it's two or three things. I think the first thing is that um, the definition of a habit that needs to be changed is something that causes you problems. Any behavior that you do again and again that you know causes you problems, okay? So most people can think of a few. We all have some, you know. Um, the second thing is that um, I think that part of what causes people to have difficulty with this is that they think that a person who, who eats well and exercises, for example, was born with these magical compliance genes and they somehow are predisposed to just do the right thing and then they know the right thing to do and it just comes easily to them. Well, if that's your belief about it, you can really feel helpless because if, I, if I'm having trouble, then I must not have the compliance genes. I guess I'm just going to have to be overweight and sick. But if you come at this from the standpoint that, um, and I'm sure you're familiar with practices studies where a lot of this stuff comes from, you can look at people who do the right things and they have certain thinking patterns. They also have certain skills. Mm -hmm. And 
they can learn their thinking patterns and their skills. They can use the skills. In other words, if these people are better at planning, which is why they exercise and eat well, well, if you're not a good planner, we can teach you how to be a planner. If these people um, are good at controlling their environment to motivate better behaviors, well, we can teach you how to do that. And so you take the mystery out of it. I don't have good compliance genes. I've set my life up to facilitate the right thing. I can show you how to do that too, and then you won't go down these paths of self-destruction that you're going down right now. Definitely. And speaking of environment, that's one reason that I really love the concept of the blue zones and changing the environment around you. But related to that also is the um, concept that habits aren't just individual, but we have habits that also affect our families, our organizations, and our communities. So what advice do you have for a family unit? You know, it's more than just one person. Obviously, the mom might be able to change your habits, but how does she influence that of her children or maybe her husband is resistant? What are some key concepts there whenever you're trying to influence an entire family? Usually when we're trying to influence an entire family, it starts with a person with a problem. That's how they end up in your office or my office. And one of the first things that we try to get people to realize is that if you want to solve your problem, you don't want to make it contingent on everybody else agreeing to live like you. Mm -hmm. In other words, somebody has to go first and set an example. And sometimes not drawing a line in the sand and saying, I'm not staying married to you unless you adopt this diet. Because then it becomes about winning the argument, not really about what this should be about, which is how we're going to live our lives and take care of our health and all that sort of thing. So um, the first thing I tell people is, let, let's come down a few octaves and learn how to negotiate people. So a typical thing that you might do is that we might advise somebody to do, um, you've got uh, the wife wants to eat well, husband not on board. Okay, so you don't go scare the guy half to death and say, no more animal foods for you. Instead, you say, listen, I'm going to be changing my diet because I really want to get rid of this asthma. It's starting to scare me a little bit. I've had a couple of episodes. I need to take off some weight. So I'm going to be making some dinners. And I'll, make, I'll, I'll add some chicken and things like that for you, but I'm going to be eating more of a plant-based diet, and um, just to let you know, but nothing else is going to change. And, and what happens when you do this, everybody relaxes and says, oh, she's not going to try and make me do something or whatever. And, and more often than not, if the food's really delicious, they end up coming their way. I mean, we, we have uh, one of my good friends here had this happen with her husband, and their, their story is in one of my books, Gary and Ellen Siegel. And uh, she came first, and she really didn't have all the health problems. Gary did. But she said, I know better than to go home and make my husband do this. He'll just, uh, well, what happened is Gary gradually got interested in this. And, and then I'll tell you what a big turning point was. He was eating really well, and he lost a bunch of weight. Then his brother had a stroke, and now Gary's like a former smoker. He eats better than I do. It's like nothing bad ever touches his lips, you know. And so he's totally on board. And she says in, in my book, uh, she said, I'll never get tired of hearing my husband holler out from the kitchen, do you want cucumbers and your salad? You know, because this is the guy that wanted to live on chicken and cheese. So that's an example. of You sort of have to let people get used to the idea and not make it such a line in the sand. Now, when it comes to children, I have some very strong opinions about this. And one is that um, when it comes to the health and welfare of our children, uh, we have to take control of things. In other words, we don't say to a seven-year-old, um, you know, it's a pretty good idea for you to go to school and do well in school. And if you feel like you want to do that, great. If you feel like you'd rather stay home and watch cartoons, well, you know, kids will be kids. You know, we're pretty adamant about certain things, you know. Mm -hmm. And we're, we watch the television shows that 
they're watching, and, we, and we're care- good parents are careful about these things. So it's perfectly reasonable for a parent to say, um, we're just not going to have potato chips in the house anymore. They're great foods. We'll have them at the Labor Day picnic, but this isn't going to be part of the daily fare. And uh, we're not going to have macaroni and cheese for dinner. I'm going to make delicious food. I mean, I know you hate chickpeas. I won't make you eat those. But within reason, I'm preparing good meals. You want to eat, you don't want to eat, that's fine. Kids have a strange way of surviving and starting to eat if they see that there's no other option. And I think parents need to take moral authority, regain moral authority over their children when it comes to things like food, because they're setting children up for a lifetime of health or a lifetime of misery and obesity and that sort of thing. So um, unfortunately, I think parents have lost a lot of control, and we sometimes have to help them regain control of these types of things for their children's welfare. I agree with you 100%. And as a pediatrician, I'm saying that all the time, especially for moms to try to give up this making multiple meals each night because the child won't eat this or won't eat that or they're too picky. And um, I feel that that actually perpetuates the habit of the child wanting to eat an alternative food and being pickier and pickier over time because they know that they can be. Um, So I really love um, that you said that. Why do you think it's so hard for some parents though to, um, to change those foods in the house? Why do you think they feel such a tension around removing the chips and the cookies and the treats? Well, I've always said that food is a is sort of a little microcosm for the whole dynamic. Okay, so the parents who are shy about changing the food are the parents who are trying to be tall friends to their children. And I always tell parents, your child doesn't need a tall friend. Your child needs a parent. Right. So that's the first problem. And and normally, and I'm generalizing because there are exceptions to the rule. But a lot of times, these parents are quite permissive about a lot of other things too. And so this is a good lesson in gaining control. I remember telling one woman, I used to be a lot nicer than I am now. I'm 60, so I don't have to be so gracious anymore. But I I told a a parent, I said, you know, she said, uh, this is going to be very difficult. And he's going to throw fits and all this. And she goes on and on. I said, I'm sure it is, but I'm going to tell you right now, if you don't start to get this under control, you're going to need value in a drip bag by the time this kid is 16 and has a driver's license. I mean, you've got an out of control kid and it isn't just the food. That's just one aspect of it. You've got to rein this all in. So I think that's a problem. I think another problem is that somehow along the line through a whole series of things that would take longer than we have today to outline, we invented this thing called kid food. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Kids are supposed to eat different food from parents. Now, if you live in Ethiopia, there's no kid food. There's just food. All right. There's nothing kid food, but, but we have kid food here in the United States. And so we have now probably the third generation of people who grew up on kid food. Now you've got parents eating kid food and they're assuming that the kids only want to eat the kid food. Kids certainly are not going to eat cauliflower or Brussels sprouts. Now you and I know they do and they will and they love it and the whole nine yards, but the parents don't know that. So, so you've got this cultural thing going on that, um, it's cruel and unusual punishment to make your child eat good food. And really, it's cruel and unusual punishment to allow your child to eat bad food. Um, one study that I read, and you might be familiar with it, that just brings, I think, out how horrible it all is, is the, ch- the child who's overweight or obese rates his quality of life as being worse than a child with cancer who's getting chemotherapy in a hospital. Now, if that doesn't just make you want to cry, and go home and get rid of the bad food and feed your children vegetables, I don't know what will do it. 
Actually, I haven't seen that study, but that sounds horrible. I'll have to look that up. Um, but what you mentioned about kid food, that reminds me of a video I did recently on snack food, <laughs> which is the same thing. I often have people ask me, well, what should I snack on? Um, and my response is like, well, what do you usually eat? Can you, you know, it doesn't have to be something special. It's like snacks don't have to be chips or snacks don't have to be crackers. I think we have to start changing the way we think about food and just eat when we're hungry, stop when we're satisfied and eat whole plant foods as much as possible. Um, but we have created these new definitions of what kid foods and what snack foods should be. And usually they're highly processed or high in animal products. Um, so let's switch gears just a little bit. You have written a couple of books. Your first book is called Solving America's Healthcare Crisis, and you also have written a book called Food Over Medicine. So I'd love to ask you, what is your vision for healthcare? So if you could reinvent it right now, how would you reinvent healthcare to make it better for all of us? We're actually reinventing it here right now in a certain way. I, I think that what we have to look is the healthcare system as it stands right now is not going to change much because there's too much financial incentive not to change. Um, now, there are some very good people working within a bad system who are doing some right things, but, but to actually change the dynamic of the healthcare system, there's just too much money in it. So I think what has to happen is doctors and patients, healthcare providers and patients who learn the types of things that we're talking about, go off and do their own thing. And as you, every person that leaves the healthcare system creates a strain on the system. The system's put together with chewing gum and paper clips as it is. So there's a certain amount of, you know, you withdraw a certain amount of money and bodies from the system and it will start to collapse. And it's very close to that precipice right now. And we've seen this happen in a couple of other industries. Um, one, I'll just give you two quick examples of how consumers in particular can make a change. Um, one is is in the food business. We've already seen this. So when I started this, this whole thing, my own dietary change 22 years ago, um, in Columbus, Ohio, where I live, there was a health food store the size of my bedroom. And it was a strange and unusual place. You had to wear your beads and sing Aquarius when you were okay? We took people there for field trips because we knew they'd never go back once they walked in and you know, all that. So, so we had that. And then the grocery stores would have this little tiny section. It was about this big and it said health food. And then there was the rest of all of it. All right, so, so it was difficult to eat well. Now, let me tell you about Columbus, Ohio right now. All right, this has become a bigger city. Um, ever, we have three Whole Foods here, and two of them are two of the biggest in the chain. We have three Trader Joe's, which is they have more better food than, than many chains. Every single grocery store here has an enormous produce section, and they don't even have a health food section anymore. The good food is just like it's where the salad dressings are. And it's, you know, you can just shop like a normal human in a grocery store. Every restaurant serves good food. In fact, a new restaurant owner was interviewed by our local newspaper and talked about the vegetarian and vegan entrees on her menu. And, and uh, she said, you know, you can't really operate a restaurant in Columbus, Ohio without having these things now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what happened? Did a bunch of restaurant owners and grocery store chains get together and say, you know, these people in Franklin County are so nice. Let's do a nice thing for them and shape up the food. This is demand, people wanting to buy this stuff. So the selections in the store change. Another great example outside of the healthcare food business is the automobile industry. You know, it used to be controlled by three car manufacturers in Detroit who made cars that were overpriced and really didn't work so well. 17 signatures at General Motors to change the paint color on a car. 
What happened? The foreign car makers came in here with better cars, less expensive cars. They decimated the market by being better. So I think that's what's going to happen in healthcare. Good doctors like you are going to attract a following. We're going to starve out bad doctors. And as people take health into their own hands and do things differently, they're going to starve out the system uh, eventually. And that's going to be an exciting thing to watch. And you and I are both young enough to see it happen. I love it. And I can't wait for that day. And you're right. I mean, things are changing. I feel like the time is now. I feel like there's an energy and there's an enthusiasm around people really wanting to take control of their health and looking for that right information to lead them in that direction. So going along those same lines, what would you change in food policy? If you could give us three things that you could change, you had a magic wand and you can change it right now. What are three things that you would change in food policy in America? Um, the first thing is we've got to get the USDA out of the food guidelines business because they're a organization for farmers. So you take that away. The second thing is you end subsidies for unhealthy foods. You level the playing field. And I think the, the third thing is that um, we have to start teaching children at an early age the importance of health. Okay, the importance of health. It, it's a mindset about this being important. And, and this is an observation I've been watching a lot lately. I've been making a lot. Nobody comes in here who doesn't take care of their house. If they can afford to come here, they maintain their homes. They maintain their cars. They don't drive their car until it just doesn't run anymore and leave it by the side of the road. My point is that people know how to maintain things, and they do it. They're culturalized to do it. Nobody in our country is culturalized at an early age unless they come from an unusual family to take care of their body, to take care of their health, to see that that's part of your value system. You want to live a long, productive, great life. You can have it in most instances, but it's earned and you have to work at it and it's a responsibility and all that sort of thing. And I think if we started doing that, I think we would see a lot of things change. Mm -hmm. And how should we be teaching our children? Do you think it should just take place in the home with the parents or in the schools or special classes? What would you think is the best way to facilitate that education? I don't think it's gonna happen in the schools. I think it's gonna happen in families and it may happen through special classes that you teach and I teach here. Um, the reason why it can't happen in the schools is that first of all, we've gotten, this is a political issue, but it's an important one to point out so we don't have unrealistic expectations of schools. Um, when I was a kid, and I'm 60, so I know that's a long time ago, the school system was controlled by the local school board. There was very little state and federal involvement. Well, what's happened is it's all become very centralized. So the school system I live in, the citizens here have very little input into how the school system is run, what's taught, who works there. So, so it's very hard to change anything in the school. The other problem in changing things in the school is that you have this disagreement about which philosophy of diet, and, and, and where that comes from, this confusion about diet, this is just only one place it happens, it happens all over the place, is because we assume that everybody is talking about diet is an equal, all right? So Colin Campbell, who's written 350 articles published in the top peer-reviewed journals and a 60-year research career, he speaks at a health conference and then a New York Times reporter who wrote a best-selling book on health because he wanted to share his story, he's the next presenter. Well, as long as everybody's equal, you're going to have this constant confusion, and I don't think we're going to change that anytime soon. So I think it's really taking families, again, sucking people out of the system, saying, come over here. We'll teach you how to do this with your kids. And then with kids, it, it's not, you don't sit your children down when they're three and say, let me tell you about health. Take care of your body, 
eat your vegetable. You know, it doesn't work that way. It becomes part of the family culture. Talking about how we eat differently. Talking about it's okay to have cake on your birthday. All right. Today, not your birthday, you get pineapple for dessert. All right. So, so it's this constant, the way you teach your kids everything else. It's part of your family culture. And the child grows up feeling the sense of responsibility and knowing and understanding the difference between the way we eat over here and your buddy John who eats you know, hot dogs for dinner every night. Right. And, and for parents modeling that behavior. So walking, you know, talking the walk, you know, they're walking the walk and they're doing those behaviors and maybe not even making a big deal about it. Maybe they just eat healthy and they live a healthy lifestyle and the kids don't think that's any different. They just think that that's normal. And when they go out to the rest of the world, then they think that might be weird. <laughs> so wouldn't that be nice if, you know, the rest of us didn't seem like the weird ones. We just seemed like the normal ones and everything else was weird, you know? Um, so I think that that's an important concept too, is that sometimes parents don't have to do anything special except just do the best that they can with their own habits. Well, um, and this goes to something else I want to talk about too. It kind of circles back to something you said about um, parents raising children and this sort of thing. One thing today, I think is more so than when I was a kid, to bring up healthy children, one of the things you have to put in your family DNA is we're different and that's great, okay? Because if you bring up your children to be like all the other children, you're gonna be in trouble. Even in an affluent school district like mine, and you know, my kids are in their 40s now, but late 30s, early 40s, but even back then, you know, we had all kinds of things going on, some food related, but also some things that are called, you know, just mom's letting the kid have a slumber party while she's not home. Okay, so, so your kid, if you're going to not allow that kind of behavior, which I think most responsible parents would say, not a good plan, teenagers in the house without an adult all night, right? So your kid is going to be different. I think if you put into your DNA, not just that we eat differently, but our family is different, not because we're arrogant, but because we, this is our value system. We're not saying it's better than everybody else, but this is just the way we live our lives. And it's cool to be different. Mm-hmm. Look at all the things that happen because we're different. You know, we went camping in South Africa, John eating hot dogs, he didn't get to do that kind of stuff. So our whole family has a different culture. And I grew up that way, not so much about the food, but my parents were really entrepreneurial and my grandparents. And you know, So we grew up, my sister and I grew up thinking anything's possible, hard work is great, and get an education and work hard, and anything you want can be yours. And that was not the way everybody in my school was. But you know, my parents dreamed big, they accomplished big. We were different from everybody else and we learned to love it and say, we're proud of this, you know? So, oh, and it's definitely very evident in what you have done because you are an amazingly hard worker and you've accomplished a lot. So I can see how that was really a gift that your family gave to you, that gave you those beliefs, that belief system that you can do what you want and you can live the life that you want. And so that's amazing. That's a great point, um, Pam, that you bring up. If there's a mom out there that's feeling overwhelmed because she's got several kids Right now, maybe the eating's not in line. Maybe they're not really doing a lot of physical activity. And, you know, there's all kinds of things out of whack. Where could she start? What would you say is the biggest bang for the buck if she could just make one change? Well, I think the the key is to make the, the big change in a reasonable period of time so you don't scare everybody. So here's what I mean. I think there is an optimal diet. And I don't like this taking 12 years to make baby steps. And I don't think you teach any value systems about food or anything that way. So we're doing this interview on July 13th, okay? 
So by July 14th, we don't have to clean out the house and change the food. You just scare everybody, particularly kids. But the other side of it is if we're still having this discussion about what to do Thanksgiving, this has been just dragged out. So the first thing I think is to start with the low hanging fruit, stop buying junk, you know, just stop bringing junk into the house, Uh, start serving fruit for dessert. Um, And then gradually changing the food and, and, and not going to the exotic. This is a big thing even with adults. Everybody thinks you have to eat forbidden rice and some strange vegetable you never saw before. I mean, most, there's some dishes that the family really likes and they could be changed, like a black bean chili or a five bean chili. Don't put the meat in, you know. So start with familiar things that you can change and then you just gradually move in the direction. And in four to six weeks, you can convert the household. And if you have a recalcitrant child who just refuses to eat, I'll tell you, two or three times going to bed um, without dinner usually changes it. And I'll tell you a funny story that goes to that point. Um, we were working with a family at a corporate site, actually. And uh, this is how they handled the situation. Young couple with a two-year-old, a half-year-old. So um, the child gets dinner, and she's used to macaroni and cheese and all that. So she gets a healthy dinner, but with foods that she basically likes, she just prefers macaroni and cheese. And so the mom and dad said, she said, I want to eat. They said, no problem, you don't have to. And uh, they took the, covered the plate, put it in the fridge. And so, of course, a couple hours later, the little girl says, I'm hungry. They said, wait, terrific. We saved dinner for you. All you have to do is warm it up in the microwave. And, of course, the little kid's face falls. Next morning, she gets up for breakfast. Guess what's sitting at the table? Last <laughs> night's dinner. So she looks up at her mother. She goes, Mommy, let me ask you a question. When can I have oatmeal? She said, as soon as you eat that. She goes, okay. So the kid shovels the food in her mouth. And then she wants some oatmeal, never happened again. In one meal, these, this family managed to cure this child of this whole thing. And, of course, you got two parents sitting there on the same page. And the kid's looking at dad. Is dad going to give in? Dad's not giving in. Mom's not giving in. I better eat this stuff so I can go on to the next thing. And so um, just having the fortitude to say um, at some point in time when you start getting that pushback, I know I'm right. I know this is the right thing to do. And whatever resistance I'm getting now, that will change over time. So I think that's, that's the big idea. You've got to start down the path with low-hanging fruit, get to increasingly difficult things, and then at some point, you start on the gauntlet and say, it's okay to throw a fit. You're still not getting macaroni and cheese. That is a great story, and it is so familiar to me because my youngest child is adopted, And when we first brought him home, he was 18 months. So we took six months to coddle him and work on the bonding and pretty much let him have whatever he wanted. But I was itching for those six months to be over. And once it was over, everything changed. So I was really nervous about doing that because he was extremely picky. But I'll tell you, he not once has gone to bed hungry. He, he will cry, he will throw a fit, he will get stubborn, he will dig in his heels, but you know, he might go to his room for a little bit and he'll come back and he'll sit down and he'll eat that whole dinner. And, but the, the most hilarious thing is that after a couple of bites, he's moaning in pleasure. So he likes the food. And when I talk to him afterwards, we'll be like, that's that, you know, that it, every, what mommy makes most of the time, you really like it, but you have this fear and anxiety that it's not going to taste good. And he'll be laughing and he'll be like, I oh, know, ha ha, you know, that's so funny. And he's so happy. But then it'll happen again. So you really do, you have to be, you, don't, you have to be strong as a parent. And I think a lot of parents get afraid because they think that they're starving their child. 
But what I tell most parents is, or you know, most of the time, kids are healthy, they're above average, they have you know higher BMIs, they're not failing to thrive. Missing a meal is not gonna hurt them at all. And most of the time, just like my son, they actually won't miss the meal. They may right. delay it for a couple of hours, but then just they're like, Yeah, I'm kinda hungry. <laughs> you know? yeah. So yeah. they'll come back and eat and they'll be fine. Right. Um, so I think that's the big fear that parents have that they're gonna hurt their child somehow. So great, great story. Now I want to move a little bit to motivation, and I want to ask you um, kind of a more personal question. What do you use as your motivation? What is it that gets you up every morning to do this work that you do? Because I know that it's hard work, and, and I know that you have some great victories, and it's really fun, but I imagine that some days might be kind of difficult. So what motivates you to keep going and to keep climbing higher and higher and really build this company that you have? I think the biggest thing is we're winning. <laughs> we keep getting bigger. We keep seeing um, things change. I mean, I'm not the, the only person writing about evidence-based medicine and criticizing the medical system. More and more other people are, and health professionals are writing about it. So I think we're gaining traction. The biggest thing that, that keeps me motivated, though, is the success that we have with That's what really does it for me. Um, so, you know, a good example is, you know, you have a person very sick. I had a person with psoriasis from his forehead to his toes, right? And so we did all the things that you do diet-wise and some adjuvant treatment to deal with psoriasis, and two months later, it's gone. And just seeing this person go from being so miserable to being happy and all that, that's, I never get tired of that. And, and I think that, I don't know if it's God or the universe, but when you get to feeling a little tired and cranky, usually some story like that comes through. Somebody will write and say, I did everything you said and I'm sending you a picture. I don't have any psoriasis anymore. You know, so, so that's, I think, what, what keeps me going. Um, and I do love research. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a bookworm and a science nerd, so this is sort of like a perfect job for me. <laughs> I really like to do. And you have great content that you put out and I really love reading your newsletters and you have the videos and stuff. I think uh, what you said is right. I think the same thing happens to me. So I, I might have one of those days where I'm just kind of like, Ugh, and maybe not feeling as motivated or feeling like it's wearing on me and getting a little cranky. And then like an hour later, you meet somebody or talk to somebody. It's like, this has changed my life. And it's, it's like getting an infusion. It's like getting a drug. You're like, okay, I can keep going. <laughs> you know? so it, it happens every time. Well, and I think also practicing what we preach. In other words, you need decompression time. I have a little place uh, by the beach up in Port Clinton, Ohio. And I always tell people that's why I'm not in the asylum. I escape there and I can work there. I mean, I found out laptops work on the beach just fine. So I can sit under an umbrella and make slides or whatever I'm doing up there too. But, but learning how to take care of yourself so that you come every day to the table fresh and full of energy and ready to face things instead of running yourself into the ground. It, it, it's easy to do not just in our occupation, but in any occupation. And it goes back to that valuing taking care of yourself as part of, you know, just like I would not let the roof fall in on my house. I can't let my health go down the tubes for work because that's just as uh, irresponsible, really. Yes, yes, yes. I love that, especially because I work with a lot of very high achieving stay at home mom. So even though they don't have a career, they treat their motherhood and their parenting extremely seriously. Multiple kids, they, a lot of them homeschool. And that's one of the things I see lagging is the self care. 
Um, and the same thing happens to me. I know that whenever I start having those first signs that I'm wearing myself down, I need to take time for myself because that is part of a comprehensive health maintenance plan for every human. And so I want all my moms out there to hear what Dr. Popper is saying, that it's important to take time for yourself and do your self-care because that will keep you going for the long haul and keep you more joyful and happy for your kids. Because if you're cranky all the time, that's not helpful to anybody either. Well, I'll share a funny story with you. You know, we have, a, I love my center. We have a hot yoga studio and a gym and it's a playground for healthy people. And I, when I opened it, I thought, I want to be here if anybody else comes, that's great, right? So anyway, having the hot yoga studio here, I love yoga. And sometimes it'll be crazy here and I'll say, well, I don't know if I should do yoga and take time. Here's what the staff says to me. You should go. We're fine. We'll take care of everything. You go to yoga. And here's why they say that. Because they know if I go to yoga at 9.30 and come out at 11, I'm going to be a happier Dr. Pam. I'm going to be much nicer to everybody. I'll have a better day around here. Same thing with running. You know, it's a beautiful day. Sure would like to take a run. And people say, you should go do that. Really. Go on ahead. We're fine. We got everything under control. You go ahead. So even the staff here has noticed the difference in me when I take time in the middle of the day to go do something like that for myself. And it reminds me of how important it is because I'm discernibly different to other people when I am rested and hydrated and fed and exercised, you know, and, and everything else is better. Even if it's a stressful day, everything else is better. That's awesome. I love it that your staff's like that. They're like, please just go to oh. yoga. <laughs> <laughs> what I want to ask you a little bit more about a difficult time in your life. If you have a time when, you know, things were really rough and it was really hard to get through, what did you use in that situation as your motivation to pull through? Um, I think that, uh, well, I've had a lot of difficult times. I mean, I've had a really charmed life and, um, and that's what mostly people see. Uh, but I've had a lot of um, really horrific things happen too. And that's just the way life goes sometimes. Um, one thing that I've realized um, is that in the last 20 some years that I've been taking care of myself differently and better, I'm a lot more resilient for those times. I, in other words, I don't have to you know, kick myself from behind to just keep going. And, and the reason is I feel better and my head's clear. So if you're dealing with something horrific, which I was a few years ago, but your head's clear and you're energetic and, you're, and you feel good, you're not sick and you're not drugged up, you have a lot more resources to bring to the table to solve the problem. And so I think that the habits actually help. I think the biggest thing is that if you can look back on your life, and of course I'm 60 and I have a lot of life to look back on, but I've had challenging times and every single time, I'm going to knock on wood here because I hope it continues, but every single time something has happened that's been highly disappointing, unfulfilled expectations or you know going through a challenging time at the end of the deal i've always ended up saying i really didn't enjoy that at all but it actually happened for the best and i will tell you that i started this company on the heels of a very big disappointment something i wanted to have happen and didn't happen and i went home and i felt sorry for myself for a little bit three or four days and i thought well you know i'm kind of interested in this nutrition thing maybe i should start pursuing that and here I am. And I look back and I think about how devastated I was. And now I think, wasn't that the bee's knees? Because I wouldn't be here if that hadn't happened. So if you can have that sense of positive expectation that everything actually does come out for the best um, in the end, even though you can't see it, 
and um, it, it will help pull you through. Don't you th think that in itself is also a habit though? It's almost like a habit of optimism and positivity because you have kept going in the past and, and you picked yourself up and you moved forward and things did improve, that that itself becomes a habit, almost like that perseverance or that persistence. Well, and that goes to the thinking patterns, which can change. In other words, if, if you're a pessimist, you can learn to not be a pessimist if you want to. You have to want to. That's, that's involved in anything. But um, uh, you can learn to be an optimist and to change your thinking. And even when starting dietary change, business, whatever, you, you can see this dividing line. So if you start something, there's a type of person, things go wrong. They always go wrong. And if you have some idea you're going to start something and it's just all going to be, you know, peaches and cream, it never works out that way. There's always unexpected stuff. So you start something and things go wrong. The person who's a pessimist says, see, this always happens. You know, and this is a sign that I made the wrong choice. The, the optimist said, um, apparently I have to learn something in order to go forward, all right? So the same event happens, and this is, I think, part of the, the cognitive issues you have to deal with with diet, lifestyle change and success and all this kind of stuff. The cognitive issue is the event is not the issue. It's the perception of the event. It's the process of the event that responds to the event or happening or statement, whatever it is, it's mine. It really, really makes a difference in the end. That's awesome because I, I'm a psychology major. I love psychology. I learn as much I, as I can about it. But there was a time period when we believed that people are born with certain personalities and it's fixed and you can't change it. And even certain traits like pessimism and optimism. And obviously some people are going to lean more one way or the other. But now we know that our brains are more plastic than that. And you can actually change very strong and large personality traits. Mm -hmm. And I've been using that also to talk to patients and my families about other habits and traits that they form. Like some people kind of identify themselves as, well, I just love junk food. I'm always gonna love junk food and I'm a junk food person. Um, and I just posted on my Veggie Fit Kids Facebook page the other day that reflecting on my childhood, I was raised on sugary cereal, frozen burritos, uh, Eggo waffles that I would eat by the box. And I, I was essentially a junk food kid, but now, I crave vegetables and greens and fruits and whole grains. And if I eat the junk food, maybe it does taste good. But after a day or two, I'm just like, ugh, this doesn't feel good anymore. So that is a huge change. And just like the optimism, pessimism, we can work on changing those traits and those habits. Right. Well, you have to first become conscious of them. Then you have mm -hmm. a place where you say, I'm not happy with this anymore. And I think it starts with an awareness. Like the next time you think something negative or the next time any habit, back to just habits in general, whether it's negative thinking, smoking, drinking, taking drugs, eating bad food, be 100% in the moment and experience what this is like. And you know what happens to people if they do that? They start to become disgusted with themselves. I mean, a smoker will come back and say, oh my gosh, that stinks. I mean, my clothes stink, my mouth, I mean, just, ugh. Okay, well, when you're, when you're just responding and mindless about everything, you never experience that. When people start to hear their dialogue, I've actually had people say, I got so sick of listening to myself be negative. It was like I had to change my dialogue. I couldn't stand it anymore. It's like, oh, back 
to make people listen to you like this, you know? So I think there's a certain amount of mindfulness that you start with to just become aware. Don't worry about changing the habit of negativity or whatever. Just become aware in the moment and experience the bad habit in all of its full glory mm -hmm. and see how awful it is. And then it becomes easier to change. It's like, oh my gosh, I don't want to be like Yes, that awareness can go a long way for a lot of people because we aren't really taught to be mindful or aware of our thoughts. We just kind of figure it, okay, we do something and we, that's just something that we do or almost that we, it's, it's against our will. Like we're just drawn to do something, you know, and so we're not paying attention to those thoughts that come before we actually take the action. Right. What is a good habit that you have that you are most proud of and how did you form it and how do you maintain it? I think the best habit is really something that's consistent across a lot of things. I'm disciplined. And, and I'll tell you one of the best things I ever learned, well, two things that, that in business that I think have helped me with habits, personal eating habits, everything. The first one is the concept of automaticity. This is what I teach our people here. Okay. So every day, People get up in the morning and all day long, they do things automatically. They don't stop and have debate about it. So when I'm coming to the traffic light, I don't say, should I stop or not? Or maybe I'll just run this one. I mean, we automatically stop at a red light. Yes. No thinking. When you get up in the morning, you don't, most people don't say, maybe I'll go to work. Maybe I won't. I don't know. If I'm going to fix my kid's breakfast, let's think about it. Brushing the teeth. Yeah. So here's the thing. If we gave a lot of debate to all of those things, we would be unable to manage our lives. It would be completely out of control. So we convert a lot of things to automaticity because it makes life organized and all that sort of thing. When you get to the place where you, where you can get your good, good eating and lifestyle habits in that automatic phase, like I'm not thinking about whether I'm going to yoga. I always go to yoga on Wednesday at 730. I'm not thinking about whether or not to um, go to the farmer's market on Saturday. I always do that. I always batch cook on Sunday. And you take all the thinking and cogitation out of it, it becomes easier. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing, I listened to an Earl Nightingale tape years ago when I was starting to do sales training. And this, another one of those things applies to everything. Very profound statement. The difference between successful and unsuccessful people. And this is true whether we're talking about weight loss, business, food, changing your diet, anything. Successful people are motivated by desirable outcomes. Unsuccessful people are motivated by desirable methods. So that, that's all it is. The, the unsuccessful people, person, will accept any outcome that is based on the preferred habits. So whereas the successful person will say, I'm willing to have discomfort here to get there. And so once people understand that concept, then they have a choice to make. Am I interested in desirable methods or desirable outcomes? Because if you haven't exercised for 20 years, and that's where I was 22 years ago, the gym is not going to be a fun place. It's going to be uncomfortable. But if I was motivated to not be fat with dark circles under my eyes and no energy anymore, outcomes. Okay, so discomfort right now, don't care. Outcome, that's what, that's what I'm looking for. So if you can get focused on that and have some reason for doing it, it makes a big difference. Wonderful. And I'm assuming too that whenever you're focused on the outcome and not the specific method that you become more flexible. And after you try something for a while, if it's not getting you to your outcome, you're able to change your path to try to tweak your way to that outcome that you're wanting. 
Well, and everybody has to do that, you know, and I, and people are surprised sometimes to hear this, but I have a lot of things that I do. Um, they're kind of habitual now, but I know that I do them. So one example is um, uh, if I'm coming to yoga, one of the ways to make sure that I do it is to come in here in spandex. Now, do you know how silly I would feel sitting here in spandex all day if I don't go to yoga? Okay, so I'm going to yoga. I mean, seriously, you come in here in spandex, you're going to yoga. Um, another thing that, that I do that I think is really helpful is maybe six times a year I don't feel like running. So I have this little game I play with myself. I'm going to go out and walk around my like immediate neighborhood if I feel like that was okay. I'm going to run. If I want to quit running after one mile, I'll come home. Well, the option to quit actually makes me, once I'm out there, I always complete it, right? It's just, and then in the wintertime, we have some bad winters here and I have to run inside on a treadmill because I hate the cold. So I found a great way to make myself do that. I have my whole little setup with the treadmill and everything. And I binge watch series on Netflix and Amazon Prime. And I have a little rule for myself, which is I have to have one of the kinds of shows that's like an hour long. And there's always the next episode. You can't wait to get to it. And you cannot watch it except when you're on the treadmill. Nice. So instead of dreading the treadmill, and I've been doing this for like four winters now, it's almost like when spring comes, gosh, I, I really like riding outside, but it's fun watching those shows, you know, so I watched all the seasons of Scandal and Revenge. I mean, it's brain candy, but it made me run, you know. Yes, yes. So that's the carrot that you use to motivate yourself to do something that you might kind of not do unless you had that. Right. And I love that because I think when people see us as healthcare practitioners, especially ones that are living this lifestyle, they assume we're kind of like robots and that we just are perfect all the time and that it's just so easy for us. But I love what you said about automaticity because that works really well for me too. I have a non-food example with my children that it was hard for me to schedule in uh, quality time with them. So I just made Thursday afternoon, it's my day off, I dedicate it to them and I pick something fun or let them pick something fun that we're gonna do together and we haven't missed even a Thursday since we started it. And I look forward to it and they look forward to it and now I'm getting it every week for sure. We're getting our quality time together that we can all have fun with. Um, and things can start just like that where you make it, everybody knows, it's Thursday, we're gonna do something fun together. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation, Dr. Pam. Thank you very much. As we close up, would you like to talk about how people can find you, get on your newsletter, and what services and products that you offer for people that may not live in Ohio, um, but for those that are local, but also uh, nationally, internationally? Yeah, so um, I answer all my own emails, as you know. TamPomber.com, feel free to email me. Uh, WellnessFarmHealth.com website. Um, to get my newsletter or video clips, just send me an email. We send out a newsletter with content on Monday, video clips Tuesdays and Thursdays. You can get a college education in a year, just little tidbits that way. And then um, we help people. We, our, our practice specialty here is informed medical decision making. And we help people sort out their messy health situations and, uh, so they can have control over their health. And then we help people with diet lifestyle change. We also own a school, as you know. We help train and retrain health professionals through our school. So we're a place where consumers and healthcare practitioners who are interested in evidence-based healthcare come together and learn. And um, so that's what we do. Hopper at msn.com. Write to me or go to our website. Thank you so much. And for your courses, they're offered to everybody, right? Mm -hmm. So even lay people, you don't have to be a healthcare practitioner and they are offered virtually. So you can take them from anywhere. 
Yeah, and you know, that's an interesting thing you bring up. People say, sometimes I can't figure out if your courses are for consumers or, or, or uh, healthcare professionals. They're for both, and here's why. Because um, I'm really opposed to this idea that the healthcare profession is um, perpetuated, that people aren't smart enough to learn this stuff and make good decisions. Consumers are smart about this stuff, and they're really interested in their own bodies and understanding their health. So actually, a lot of what we teach here, it's, it's doctors and nurses and dietitians and consumers learning together. Mm-hmm. Same thing. So that, so that everybody's having an informed decision. You know, that's the thing. So yeah, we take everybody. Yes. And the course that I took, uh, there were all kinds of people that took it. And often the non-healthcare providers ask better questions than the healthcare <laughs> providers. So I was like, oh yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, so it is fun learning from other people's perspectives that they're not stuck in this medical model of bias that we have been brought up in, in in the medical world. Well, thank you, Dr. Pam. I so appreciate this. This has been such an honor. So thanks for coming on the show today. And I will make sure that I put links um, to your website and also your email address if people want to reach out to you. Um, And I hope that you have a great day. Thanks, you too. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for their permission to use the Broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at facebook.com forward slash rocketsurgeonsmusic. Also, for more information on my work, you can find me at facebook.com forward slash veggiefitkids or you can email me at VeggieDoctor at VeggieFitKids.com. Sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and contact me if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day. We're having broccoli.